today on Against the Grain. What is the classic text of Chinese philosophy known as the Laozi or Tao Te Ching say about human virtue, effective conduct, and the origins of everything? I'm CS. Paul Golden discusses his book *The Art of Chinese Philosophy: Eight Classical Texts and How to Read Them*. Coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. The Chinese text Laozi, also known as the Tao Te Ching, has inspired and intrigued readers for more than two millennia. But what is the Tao, typically translated as the Way? What does the text say about how we should conduct ourselves? What we should value? What traditional ways of thinking we should reconsider or reject? Interpretations by scholars as well as lay readers vary widely. How do we tell which one is best, and who wrote the Laozi anyway? Paul Golden has puzzled over these matters for many years. He is professor of East Asian languages and civilizations at the University of Pennsylvania, the author of books like Confucianism and After Confucius: Studies in Early Chinese Philosophy. Golden devotes a section of his recent book, *The Art of Chinese Philosophy*, to an analysis and explanation of the Laozi, its origins, its themes, its key ideas. When Paul and I connected recently, I mentioned that since the Zi in Laozi means master, did a certain master Lao write the text? Highly unlikely. The first problem is that nobody knows very much about this master Lao. First of all, it's unclear what Master Lao means, because Lao can mean old. So does it mean old master, or does it mean Master Lao? Is Lao is is Lao his name? And there's no unanimity about that. The、uh, ancient sources are not univocal. And in fact, A.C. Graham, who is a British scholar in the 20th century. He pointed out the interesting phenomenon that more and more legends about this Laozi started to appear、um, and pushed him back further and further in time. It was a clear game of one-upsmanship to try to invent a sage philosopher who was older than Confucius and whom Confucius indeed sought out for instruction. So none of those stories are particularly believable. There is a very obscure scribe Lao. He appears in a text that not too many people read, called Guoyu Discourses of the States, and he's in the right place at the right time to be the person who is meant by Laozi. But I'm not aware that the text was ever attributed to him. And and he's not a particularly prominent figure in this text either. I just happened to notice one day when I was reading, hey, this is Scribe Lao, and he's in the right place at the right time. We don't know much about him other than that he was supposedly very wise. I wonder whether this was the figure that people had in mind. It's it's no better, it's no better than that. But then the other problem is that the text itself doesn't look like a text that was written by a single person.、Um, in the book, I talk about different. Possible ways that texts coalesced and came to be in early China, and Laozi is one of the few for which a a notion of accretion might actually be valid. So accretion is a model that holds that texts grow like a pearl inside of a mollusk slowly over time. Now, most early Chinese texts probably did not grow like that, but Laozi may have, and the reason for suspecting it is a, a, a tomb find from roughly 300 BC that has three separate collections of passages that are very similar to the received Laozi, but they're all smaller. 
And there are different ways of interpreting this. It's not necessarily the case that these are sort of like proto-Laozi that haven't grown yet. But all in all, I think that's probably, at least currently, the likeliest scenario. So um, 300 BC, you know, if you look at, look at it you know, as though it were snapshots, in 300 BC, we have these sort of smaller growing texts. And then by the time we get to about 200 BC, it's, it starts to look like a text very similar to ours. And then um, just a couple of decades later, another tomb find from Malongdui, uh, that revealed two complete editions of Laozi that are very similar to the Laozi that we have today. So, you know, the evidence is not so complete, but it looks as though over a period of less than 150 years, the text grew and that would mean, since we're talking about, you know, more than, more than three or four generations, that would mean it would have to have more than one author. You begin part two of your book, the part called Philosophy of the Way, with this text, with the Lao Tzu. Why? I think in its day it was the most influential text advancing a certain new cosmological idea. I don't know that it was the oldest. It's hard to say. Some scholars do think it was the oldest, um, and that all the other texts that use this concept of the way derive from Laozi. I'm not so sure of that. It may have emerged sort of out of a common cultural sense that this was a useful new concept. Um, but I don't challenge the notion that this was the most influential one. It was a bestseller, so to speak, uh, books weren't sold, of course. In antiquity, it's uh, found in uh, lots of different aristocrats' tombs. It was the kind of text that if you were an ambitious aristocrat, you might want to be buried with. And it survives in lots of different recensions. That's another thing that distinguishes it from most other texts. Most other classical texts survive in one recension, if they survive at all. For Laozi, we have many different ones. There's the Wangbi Laozi, the Hashanggong Laozi, the, uh, the Xiang'er Laozi. Um, there's, there's several. What is a recension? That's a terrific question. A recension is like an edition. The authors who wrote the texts that we read today didn't write them in their current form. There's lots of different stories about how these texts came to be, but usually the author would have written a short essay, uh, sometimes even a shorter piece than an essay, for a particular occasion. And then somebody later, uh, whom I call a redactor, you could think of it as an editor, gathered these pieces together and wove them into what we call the received text, which is the version that we read today. And on the one hand, it's authentic, because I don't think... Um, or at least most of these redactors were honest. Some were not, but most were honest. So, you know, it's not, it's not forged. It is authentic. But it's also not the form of the book that the author ever intended or ever put together. It was, um, it was assembled later. So let's get into the, the uh, ideas, the notions advanced in this text, uh, the Laozi, also known as the Tao Te Ching. And I want to get to the cosmology implied or indicated by the word Tao, but let's begin with sort of um, how the text's author or authors want us or suggest that we behave. So you begin your discussion of Lao Tzu with a passage that reads, The highest virtue is not virtuous, therefore it has virtue. What does that mean? It can't mean exactly what it says because it sounds like a paradox. So like so much in this text, it invites you to think about how you want to interpret it. And there are many different possible interpretations. The one that makes sense to me is that the word virtue is not being used in exactly the same sense all the way through. I think in context, this means the highest virtue is not the virtue that they teach you in school. In other words, what most people call virtue or deem virtue. And precisely because it's not the 
contrived phony virtue that they teach you in school precisely for that reason it's authentic it has virtue it's also a play on the fact that the word in Chinese means both virtue and power and in school at this time you'd probably be likely to be taught the virtue interpretation of the word and I think another aspect of this line is at the very end the, the last one therefore it has virtue it also means therefore it has power it's the real thing it's not it's not the fake thing that you're that you're taught in school and that's why it's so powerful Paul Golden is his name he's professor of East Asian languages and civilizations at the University of Pennsylvania we are talking about his book The Art of Chinese Philosophy Eight Classical Texts and How to Read Them I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. What did Confucian thinkers advance as human virtues, as the virtuous, and what stance does the Lao Tzu take toward them? I think this is absolutely the crux. Confucius and his disciples, who, in my view, lived before this text, they were getting frustrated with Bronze Age religion, which relied very heavily on the authority of ghosts and spirits. And the sense I get from the Analects and related early Confucian texts is that they were fed up with this, not because they denied the existence of ghosts. In fact, in one line in the Analects, Confucius concedes that there are ghosts. But the problem is that they don't give useful moral advice. The strong idea in the Analects is that we have to figure that stuff out on our own. We have to think for ourselves. Ghosts and spirits aren't going to help us. Priests who pretend to speak in the name of ghosts and spirits aren't going to help us. And Confucius's way of trying to help build a human discourse of morality was to emphasize thoughtful behavior that exemplified certain virtues. His key virtue was what he called Ren. I translate that as humanity because it is a homophone of the word for human being, Ren. It's basically the way human beings ought to behave. And for Confucius, that requires a lot of thought. You have to ask yourself things like, what's my relationship to the person I'm engaging? How would I want that person to treat me? Whatever you do, you have to think about it. Again, because there are no supernatural guides. Lots of, and I'm speaking here of the text, always, because I don't suppose a single author. Lots response is that none of this is natural. Heaven and earth are not humane. That's actually a quote from Lao Tzu. Just observe nature. Just observe the way animals live and die in nature. It's not humane. Humanity is something they teach you in Confucian school. And that sounds nice. But it's false. It's not how nature works. And if you want to understand nature and derive power from it, you won't act like that. You won't be humane. So if acting naturally is a sort of ideal for Lao Tzu, and if acting naturally is acting according to the Tao, maybe I'm paraphrasing your words there a little bit, then, yeah, what is the Tao? And, you know, it, it seems like a, a very difficult thing, perhaps, to, uh, to sense. It seems like a rather abstract thing. In Lao Tzu, the Tao is the mother of all things. The word had been used by earlier philosophers, but never in a cosmological sense. Usually it meant the right way to behave. And in Mozu, it didn't even necessarily mean the right way to behave. It was just a way to behave. So somebody's Tao, um, you know, path, way, or something like that, could be wrong. In the Analects and Mencius, it's usually positive. The, the, the right path, the right way to behave. But it never had a cosmological dimension as, as you know, the mother of all things, 
the source of, of, of the universe that we live in. In Laozi uh, and in other texts that I put in this group called the Philosophy of the Way, there's something that comes even before heaven. What characterized philosophy before this was trying to understand what heaven wanted, did heaven have a consistent ethic, that sort of question. And in Lao we read, heaven didn't even come first. The Tao produced heaven. Um, and the, the, the gendered imagery is very pointed. Heaven is presented as masculine throughout the culture. And the Tao is not masculine. The Tao is the mother. The Tao gave birth to heaven. And that kind of inversion of the, of the gendered diction would have been, I think, pretty noteworthy in, in classical times. Oh, here's somebody who's not writing in the style that, that we learn at school. And so Lao is saying, if you want to, you know, be ineffective, go to Confucian school and practice what they teach, and it'll be useless because it has nothing to do with the way the universe really works. If you want to be effective, and one of my arguments in the book is that this text is about how to become a sage who dominates the whole world. I mean, it's, it's, it's a how-to book to, to, to dominate the universe. Then you should unlearn everything they taught you and go back to the Tao itself or herself because that's the true origin. And that's where you'll get real power. So it's not even necessarily a bad thing from the point of view of an individual reader that nobody else understands this, that everybody else is acting um, like a self-confident fool because that allows you to dominate them. Keep them ignorant. It's okay. Well, some listeners might react to what you just said and, and say, well, gosh, if this text is all about teaching people how to dominate others, how how much do we want to pay attention to it? I mean, what about reciprocity and mutual aid and uh, people living and working together? There isn't much of that in Laozi. I'm aware that my strong political interpretation of Laozi is not shared by everyone, but there are some crucial passages in the text that some of the more benign interpretations tend to ignore systematically. Um, some of them have to do with what I just said, keeping everybody else ignorant. The way you dominate people is by not letting them know that you're dominating them, right? Then they'll react negatively. The way you end up dominating them is by placing yourself over them so subtly that they don't even know it and they don't resent it. And of course, only by studying the Tao can you do that, because the traditional modes of rulership are very antagonistic and contentious and foster resentment in the populace. So you have to throw all that out. Instead, don't compete with them. Nourish them, but keep them ignorant so that they'll have no concept of how you're cutting off their choices, how you understand a much deeper truth than they do. Um, and I, I, I think the text is noncommittal as to the question of whether this is good or bad. I, I, I don't think good and bad come into the equation at all. It's more like this would be effective if anybody would care to do it. So I personally like to think that this text offers something to people who are not bent on ruling or lording over people or dominating people. And uh, you may or may not agree with that, but I want to explore some concepts with you, concepts you elucidate in your book, The Art of Chinese Philosophy by my guest Paul Golden, that uh, are quite interesting. Uh, one is, well, let's take a recurring theme in the text, emptiness. What does it mean to be empty? So the first thing I would say is that part of the reason why Laozi has been so popular for so long is that it can't be pigeonholed into a single 
interpretation. Lots of different people have found meaning in it for centuries, and they weren't all reading it in the same way. So I truly don't believe that what I'm advancing here in the book and so on is the only possible way to read the text. I'm not a, um, an, an orthodox uh, historicist in that sense. I th I am perfectly open to the idea that different people can read Lao Tzu in different ways because that is in fact what happened. Actually, it's the only reason why the text survived. Texts that can be read in just one way tend not to survive because then when they don't seem to be resonating with the times anymore, people don't find much meaning in them anymore and in pre-modern times that means they're not preserving the text anymore and so it disappears. So the fact that the text survived for so long and in so many recensions um, is a strong indication to me that uh, different people read it in different ways. In fact, we know from these different commentaries that people read it in different ways. So don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that this is the only possible way to read the text. Um, it's more like, I think this is how the text was understood by most of the earliest readers. Now, emptiness, of course, is a crucial uh, concept. And to me, it goes along with this whole critique of tradition what you learn in school is all about accumulation. It's all about fullness. It's all about abundance. And because of that indoctrination that you get, you tend not to appreciate the value of the opposite. Concavity, hollowness, emptiness. And some of the examples in the text are, you know, a bowl or a window or something. The, the value of the bowl is in the concavity, it's in the, it's in the emptiness. Um, the value of the window is in the fact that the, uh, the window is open. If it, were, if it were full and solid, then it wouldn't let in any light and you wouldn't have a window anymore. Um, I, I think these are, these are suggestive metaphors. I think we're supposed to think about emptiness uh, more broadly than that. But it's an, it's an example of the, um, of the way that we're being asked in this text to think about characteristics and think about phenomena that tend to get short shrift by the cultural mainstream. Another example would be water. Um, you know, we tend to valorize, you know, gems and jewels and mountains and, you know, again, surplus in an agrarian society is such an important concept. Uh, and we forget about water. Water seems pretty meek. It's very soft. You don't notice it. You don't appreciate it. And yet, it's unstoppable. It'll carve a canyon if you give it enough time. It'll um, always fill... Uh, the lowest spot. It'll always find its, its path. Uh, and so another metaphor, I would say allied to the metaphor of, of, of emptiness that you find in the text is, is water. Let's try to be empty. Let's try to be like water. Other people aren't doing that. Other people are trying to be, you know, rigid and, you know, like mountains and, and full and hard. And it's not working too well for them. It's leading them to an early death. Yeah, certainly the, the power of water is something that is incontestable. And this text has really made me rethink uh, water and softness. What about Wu Wei? It means non-action. This is another important notion in the Lao Tzu, in the also called the Tao Te Ching. Uh, in what sense is non-action something desirable, maybe even essential? It's difficult to translate, I say non-action, and I don't strongly criticize that because Wu in Chinese is also hard to understand, you know, without elucidation. It's, it, it's not something that instinctively makes sense. You have, to, you have to think about what it means, and you have, to, you have to read and consider how it's used. The idea is that you can't do anything better than the way can. You, you can't grow a tree. You can plant a tree, you can set up a situation such that the tree will thrive, that would be sort of a Swinzian angle, but 
Only the Tao can make the tree grow. So don't try to do things that the Tao does better. That's not likely to succeed. In fact, the text says you could end up hurting yourself. So if there is any kind of, you know, concrete inference to be made about how you achieve this kind of subtle dominion, it's by not trying to do everything yourself. Rather, try to engineer situations so that the natural resolution, the natural course of events will favor you. Because then you have the Tao working on your behalf. And what could be more powerful than that? But what I just said is already on the level of an inference. It's already not in the text itself. So this idea of don't compete with the master carpenter, that's clearly a, a by name for the Tao. That's in the, that's in the text. You might injure your hands. That's in the text. But then what do you do with that? How do you extract meaning out of that? Um, I think there's a, a well-attested sense in in classical China that this means you know don't don't try to do everything yourself because you have limited ability, limited understanding. You're a fallible human being. Try to figure out how you can let the Tao do it for you, and then you'll have the greatest possible ally working toward your ends. That's the voice of Paul Golden. He teaches East Asian languages and civilizations at the University of Pennsylvania. His books include Confucianism, After Confucius, Studies in Early Chinese Philosophy, and Rituals of the Way, the Philosophy of Xunzi. We're talking about his book, The Art of Chinese Philosophy, Eight Classical Texts and How to Read Them. It's published by Princeton University Press. Uh, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. You said earlier how there is a kind of repudiation of contrived ethical systems, systems of learning, Confucian systems of learning that are artificial and are not uh, natural. How does then the Lao Tzu encourage us to learn anything at all if it wants to provoke us to abandon learning in the traditional sense, right? Going to school, learning from texts, getting traditional teachings. And it wants us, it sort of is uh, encouraging us to be natural in a sense. How could that be achieved other than perhaps, you know, being in the environment, walking around, looking at how plants and animals kind of do their thing without... Uh, without formal structures or institutions. I think it's very much as you say. Now, the text is not explicit about how you acquire this knowledge. The sense I get from the text is that solitary observation is really the only way that this works. It certainly doesn't advocate establishing something like a new school system, teaching a new curriculum, you know, out with the old virtue-based curriculum and in with the new Tao-based curriculum. That's not something you find in Lao Tzu at all. What comparison does the text make between uh, newborns or maybe infants and the way? One of the points of the text is that language is inadequate. Even Tao is not really the name. It's the name we give it with our limited human language, because we have to give it a name. And so one of the argumentative techniques, or let's say one of the rhetorical techniques of the text, is to try to use language to shake you out of all of the conventional thinking that you've presumably acquired, either in school or simply by being a participant in, in the myopic culture that it's criticizing. So the text is constantly looking for shocking or surprising ways of presenting its ideas. And I think part of the idea is you know, shock value to get you to rethink. We've talked about a couple of these. The, the inversion of the gendered discourse, 
the metaphor of emptiness, the metaphor of water, um, and the infant is another one. Nobody thinks of an infant as a threat. You know, beware of infant. Um, the infant can't even speak yet. The infant can't philosophize. The infant can't even stand on his or her own two feet. And yet in Lhasa we get the notion that the infant is as far away from death as a human being can be. Maybe we should be more like the infant, not less like the infant. The infant has inexhaustible energy. The infant doesn't seem to be saying anything. Maybe we should... Maybe the babbling of the infant is no more nonsensical than the babbling of the wise men. Um, so I read it as a metaphor. I don't, I don't think the text is really saying that we should crawl around like infants and start babbling. But I, I, I read it as another sort of arrow in the quiver of these attempts to shock us out of our conventional thinking. You've, you venerate wise old men. Where's that gotten you? The world is going to hell in a handbasket. Why don't we start thinking about the things that we've been ignoring? And among them, the, the softness, uh, the vitality of an infant. I, I think of, uh, of, of the, the way the infant is presented in Laozi. It's like a big ball of life. And maybe that's better than a rigid old man. Some people associate Taoism with immortality, the striving for immortality, elixirs of immortality. Does Lao Tzu, does this seminal Taoist text hold out the prospect of immortality? Probably not, and Zhuangzi even less so. On the one hand, both Lao Tzu and Zhuangzi are aware of the kinds of physical self-cultivation exercises that people were doing at the time because there are allusions to them that are pretty unmistakable. So people are aware of, 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 of the kinds of activities and calisthenics and so on that were popular to try to forestall death. But in neither text is there a notion that immortality is the goal. Uh, rather, it's to try to put yourself in a situation where you don't die prematurely, but eventually you will die. The only thing that's immortal is the Tao itself. Let's step back and talk about this book as a whole. The book is The Art of Chinese Philosophy, Eight Classical Texts and How to Read Them by my guest Paul Golden, who teaches at the University of Pennsylvania. How did you go about choosing, well, maybe you could specify the eight texts and tell us how you went about choosing them to include in this volume. These are the eight that I think are the most important because they're constantly communicating with one another. They're aware of one another. They don't always agree, of course, but they regard one another as the traditions that need to be unseated if they want to present uh, their own vision in its place. I don't know what the ninth text would be. Um, certainly choosing eight meant not choosing others. And some people have already criticized me. Well, why don't you have this text? Why don't you have that text? Well, I had to make some decisions. And I think it's pretty clear that these eight texts are head and shoulders above any of the others from the point of view of their influence on other philosophical traditions. So I divide the book into three sections. The first is philosophy of heaven, and that is the Analects of Confucius and his disciples, and then two other texts, Mozza and Mencius. And those fit nicely under that first rubric because they have a lot to say about heaven, whether we can understand heaven's intentions, what kind of ideal society on earth, does heaven want us to uh, construct? Then 
the second group, which I call philosophy of the way, that's what we've been talking about. That is Laozi, Zhuangzi, and Sunzi, so texts four, five, and six, because they all share in this new concept, which, as I've said, is largely a reaction to the older idea of heaven. And then the third section of the book I call Two Titans at the End of an Age. That's Shunzi and Hanfeizi, who lived in the third century on the eve of the unification under the first emperor. I'm sure all the listeners know about the terracotta warriors, that, that guy. And Shunzi and Hanfeizi are conscious that they're living at the end of an age. They know that Qin is about to unify the world. They are very well informed uh, of all the philosophers that preceded them. And you get the sense that they're trying to fashion a final formulation before the curtains fall on this remarkable uh, period of philosophical activity. And by third century, I know you mean third century BCE. There seems to be like this large issue of translating uh, this classical Chinese into English. You know, my understanding of, of some of that text is that there are not a lot of characters strung together, and so the the process of interpreting them is is quite difficult. Do you agree? I mean, how do we come up with anything that might be considered reliable in terms of a translation? And isn't it the fact that a translation is often, I mean, is inevitably a product of the translator's own propensities, attitudes, convictions? Oh, of course. But for these texts, that's true even if you're reading them in the original language. It's not as though they're perfectly straightforward in classical Chinese either. To spend much time with these texts and appreciate them and so on, you really have to be comfortable with uncertainty. If uncertainty isn't for you, then you probably won't enjoy these texts. You might very well not enjoy any material from classical China. You might have to find a different period or a different subject altogether. We simply don't have as much information as we would like, and that's partly because we're talking about uh, sources from a very long time ago. It's also partly because some of these philosophers didn't necessarily want to reveal their whole hand. I, I think there's good reason to believe that several of them revealed what they thought was appropriate at the moment and encouraged you to fill in the blanks. Confucius says this almost explicitly. I give one corner, and if a student can't come back with the other three, I don't repeat myself. I mean, that sounds like the motto of a philosopher who's trying very hard to force you to interpret, trying very hard not to give you a straightforward um, answer to your question. So it's not just that we don't have as many sources as we would like. It's also, I think, part of the character of at least some of these philosophers that, I talk about this in the, in the introduction, by the way, um, it's, it's at least part of the character that they're asking you to fill in a lot. And the consequence is that you have to be comfortable with un uncertainty, as I said. You also have to be comfortable with diversity of interpretation. You, you, you just can't be too insistent on a single possible interpretation because the texts aren't written that way. They're very open-ended. And um, I, I often find interpretations that I don't agree with but still appreciate. Oh, what an interesting way of reading it. I never thought of it that way. And that's quite independent of the question, do I really believe that that's the best way to read the text? Maybe yes, maybe no. But you have to acquire an appreciation uh, for open-endedness and almost a kind of interpretive pluralism in the sense that you have to be willing to allow more than one interpretation to stand. Paul Golden is my guest. He is professor of East Asian 
Languages and Civilizations at the University of Pennsylvania. We are talking about his book, The Art of Chinese Philosophy, Eight Classical Texts and How to Read Them. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. We tend to speak of different schools of classical Chinese thought, the Confucians, the Taoists, and so on. Does that make sense to you? No, I think that's anachronistic. There are two schools that recognized one another as schools. They hated each other, but they recognized one another as schools. Uh, and I, I think it's okay if you really want to use this concept of schools to speak of Confucians and Mencians. It's not schools like the Academy or the Lyceum. It's more like, um, you know, unified philosophical traditions. There, there was some sort of Moist school, I think, our received Monza is basically the school text, but we know, ne know next to nothing about the institutional structure. So it's, it's almost uh, a waste of, of, of time to, to try to talk about, you know, how the Moist school worked uh, or anything like that, where it was located, because we know, we know nothing. For all the others, the so-called schools, the Chinese word is jia, which really means house or lineage, uh, were retrospectively applied for different reasons. Sometimes it was bibliographical. There's a whole lot of books in the library and we need to figure out how to organize them. All right, for the sake of convenience, let's have this school, that school, the other school, so that at least we know how to organize the books. Sometimes it wasn't merely bibliographical. Sometimes there was an ideological um, agenda. This school understands this, but doesn't understand the other thing. This school understands this, but doesn't understand the end. And then you go through a whole sequence of them. Ah, my school understands everything. That technique arose pretty late in the story. And the most influential examples of it are from long after these philosophers were dead. They themselves really don't seem to have thought in terms of schools because they don't write like that. Uh, they address other philosophers. So Xunzi criticizes Mencius. Xunzi criticizes Zhuangzi. They, they criti uh, criticizes Shandao. Um, Mencius criticizes Song Kong. They, 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 they can be very antagonistic and critical but they don't tend to accuse other schools of thinking wrong. They tend to accuse other individual philosophers of thinking wrong. There's a, a big exception, which is that Monza, the text, criticizes Confucians generally. There's a whole chapter, Feiru, that's clearly aimed at Confucius and his disciples. And so you, I think it's fair to translate that as against Confucians. Ru can mean different things in different contexts, but that chapter is about Confucius and his disciples. So that is a kind of a groupthink, treating Confucians as a school. But that's, I would say, exceptional. Usually when you find a critique, it's um, either implied, where you have to sort of figure out who the target is from the nature of the illusions and the language and so on. Or if somebody is named as a target, it's very often another individual. You write that the anxiety of a collapsing state and the awareness that it will have to be replaced are palpable throughout the eight texts that you address in your book. So we're talking about the Warring States period in China, which ended with the unification of that country in 221 BCE. What was happening to China in this Warring States period? So that, that's a great question. The collapsing state that I was talking about is the Zhou Kingdom, which was established in the Bronze Age in the mid-11th century. The legend was that heaven chose a son of heaven, King Wen, uh, who overthrew the previous top dog known as Shang, um, because King Wen was so virtuous and therefore with heaven's support, he established this new, uh, this new domain called Zhou. When we get to the Warring States, which is the last phase of a dynasty that, that lasted uh, nearly 800 years, there is this clear sense that 
that's falling apart. It's falling apart because the Joe Kings don't have any real power anymore. Um, we say warring states because different regions of the Joe domain had already broken off into what were effectively independent kingdoms. And there was a, also an understanding that this old ideology that heaven chooses a virtuous son of heaven, that's not working anymore. Mencius is the one who addresses this most explicitly. Um, where's the sage king? There's two ways we know that there's no sage king. First of all, all the kings are corrupt and mediocre. Um, second, we're supposed to get a new sage king every 500 years. Mencius refers to this explicitly. It's supposed to happen every 500 years. Well, the last one was King One. That was not 500 years ago. That was more than 700 years ago. Um, and Mencius uses this as a way of saying we don't we don't really understand why heaven seems to have abandoned us. It also, I think, implies that Confucius was supposed to be a sage because who lived 500 years after King One? It was. It was Confucius. So there's, there's this recognition, I would say in all of these texts, that the old happy Bronze Age society with the Son of Heaven on top supported by an irresistible heaven, if that ever really did obtain in the past, it's certainly not working anymore. And we're going to have to find something else that works better. But, of course... At that point, nobody agrees anymore. Everybody has their own idea about what will work better. Except for the Analects, each text is named after a supposed author. And we've talked about uh, the Lao Tzu. Which of these supposed authors of these, I guess, seven texts were real people? I don't doubt that Mordza was a real person. I just don't think Mordza wrote the book that we call Mordza. In fact, Moists themselves didn't believe that because they very often speak in his name, um, implying that he's already dead. I have no doubt that Mencius was a real person, and similar story, he didn't write the text that we read with his name on it, and nobody believed that. He may have said the things that were recorded, but nobody believed that he put the text together. We know the name of the person, uh, the redactor who put it together. So Confucius is a real person, I don't doubt that. Mons is a real person, I don't doubt that. Mencius is a real person. When we get to the second part, it gets a lot harder. I don't think Lao Tzu is a real person. Zhuangzi may have been. Xunzi seems to think of Zhuangzi as a real person. But once again, very few people seriously believe that Zhuangzi the person is responsible for Zhuangzi the text. I really don't think Sunzi is a person. I think Sunzi is an invention. And the name means warlike, Sunwu. So what a, what a wonderful name for the supposed author of the foundational treatise of warfare, uh, Warlike. Um, but then when we get to Xunzi and Hanfeizi, they're uh, undoubtedly real people too. And they come closest to being authors in the sense that I really do think they wrote the bulk of the, the, the pieces that are collected in these texts. It's just that, once again, they didn't write them as coherent books. Later redactors assembled the books we have today out of the essays and occasional pieces um, that survived. But I, I think think they're pretty close to what we think of as, as authors. So out of the eight, I guess easily five are real people. Are real people and are not necessarily authors of the books that bear their name? That's right. I mean, I, I, I don't doubt that Confucius was a real person. I don't doubt that he had important disciples we know the names of his disciples, and there's no doubt that they're real people because there's records of them in other circumstances. Some of them were quite prominent, some of them were not. So I don't doubt any of that. And I also don't doubt that Confucius must have had some very interesting things to say, otherwise he wouldn't have attracted so many disciples, including people who could have studied, uh, you know, people at the top of society, um, like Zagong or so on, uh, who could have studied with anyone. But... I don't, I don't know what Confucius really said. I tend to be pretty conservative about all of these issues. I'm inclined to think 
most of the uh, records in the Analects are authentic in this sense that it's very hard to reconcile that philosophy with the notion that it was all simply invented much later. It, it addresses the kinds of late Bronze Age concerns that you would expect philosophy from that period to address. So if we had the miracle of going back in time to sit in with the disciples on a, a lecture by Confucius, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if that Confucius taught something very much like what we were prepared to hear by this text called the Analects. But who knows? Could, could be very wrong. Um, could be a, a really fundamental distortion that we simply can't detect because we don't have enough sources at our disposal. His name is Paul Golden, again, G-O-L-D-I-N, Professor of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Pennsylvania. His books include Confucianism, Rituals of the Way, the Philosophy of Shunzi, and Routledge Handbook of Early Chinese History, which he edited, and The Culture of Sex in Ancient China. We've been talking about his book, The Art of Chinese Philosophy, Eight Classical Texts and How to Read Them. It's published by Princeton University Press. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for writing this book and for joining us today. My pleasure. This was a wonderful conversation. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.